I'd like to begin this evening's talk with a few moments of sitting under the Bodhi tree with Siddhartha Gautama 2,500 years ago. Towards the end of that long and now famous night under the bow tree, and after Mara, the personification of all of the dark and potentially destructive forces in the mind, had let fly the poison arrows of greed, aversion, and delusion at Siddhartha Gautama. The arrow that Mara hoped would stick and then distract the Siddhartha from the clarity and the strength of his great vow and courageous determination to fully awaken, Mara shot this last arrow that was left in the quiver, accompanied by the words, what makes you think you have the right to be sitting here where and how you are? Just who do you think you are? Anyways, the Bodhisatta, the just-about-to-be Buddha, protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and penetrating sense of investigation, accompanied by clear discernment. This about to be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and a flow of an effortless effort, imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy, balanced with the deep power and cool ease of an unwavering and undistracted mind. Siddhartha Gotama, sitting under the bow tree, that night with unshakable stability, with an evenness and balance of receptive presence as though he were an immovable mountain. With all of these qualities, these factors of mind and heart perfectly in place, in response to Mara's challenge, the Bodhisatta, with his amazing grace, simply reached down and touched the earth with the fingertips of his right hand, letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was. And Mara was defeated, never again to return to the Buddha. And so we said, Maybe not always quite like the Buddha, but we sit, we practice. We sit and walk, practicing here in retreat over weeks, and for some of you over many months. And all of you, all of us, have practiced and will most likely practice intensively again in other places, at other times, alone, and with others. Our aspirations and determination often clearly and strongly felt and known. 
though sometimes they pale and may even occasionally be forgotten in the unfolding of our life. But certainly for us, most often, more often than not, they're woven into the constitution of our lives. And so as we do practice over the years through this lifetime, the particular qualities of mind and heart that were so perfectly matured, unfabricated and unprompted, at that amazing point in time, all perfectly in place within Siddhartha Siddhartha that night under the bow tree. As we practice, these capacities of mind and heart continue to grow, continue to deepen and develop, continue to mature and be known within ourselves. It's inevitable, actually, that this happens if we keep on practicing. This evening, I'd like to touch into and explore one of these qualities or factors of mind with you, mindfulness. Exploring mindfulness from the standpoint of it being a factor, a most essential factor of liberation. We'll look into mindfulness from two particular perspectives. That of our direct experience and cultivation or prompting of this quality through our ongoing practice. And the great power of protection and healing that mindfulness brings as it it develops and takes root. And we'll touch into mindfulness from the perspective of its unfabricated, unprompted presence as an aspect of the mind, the heart, of non-clinging, an aspect of the liberated mind, the liberated heart. The Buddha speaks about mindfulness as being like a precious gem, and that it's supported by seclusion, dispassion, and cessation. Mindfulness is the key factor in the mind, the heart, ripening into relinquishment, meaning the letting go into, the entering into nibbana, liberation. As we explore together this evening, consider the possibility of letting the words be a touch point or a pointing out towards directly connecting with this quality of mindfulness within yourself which from my own uh, experience is facilitated by what we might call listening from the heart, not from the head. In support of this, it's helpful to deeply relax in and through the body. So taking just a moment or two and relaxing from head to toe, dropping into the body with a bright attention. Relaxed and brightly alert at the same time, letting the whole body, mind, and heart deeply relax into directly and simply hearing. So this factor of mindfulness, 
the four domains or establishments of mindfulness. I think of mindfulness as the mother, the great mother of all the factors of enlightenment. And in fact, the great mother of the whole of our practice. In a sense, it's the factor that gives birth to all the other factors necessary for awakening. And with its establishment and blossoming, it's the factor that offers us the greatest protection. The Buddha spoke about mindfulness as being the chief. So maybe a kind of a male-female way of speaking about it. The mother, the chief. So we could say mindfulness is the chief mother. In Pali, the word for mindfulness is sati, sometimes translated as memory or to remember, to remember, to reconnect, to connect or reconnect to the present moment's experience of body and mind. Attention directed to the present moment. I think for many of us, At least at times, we forget to be mindful because of our strong habituated conditioning to not remember, to not directly, freshly, purely connect to the present moment's experience, but to remain resting in our habits, to remain resting in a kind of inertia. Years ago, in a Dhamma discussion with friends, someone asked, what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? What makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? The great intimacy of mindfulness. This moment's experience as this, just this much. Absolutely believing our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch, mind, and heart absolutely believing our body and mind. What comes to be known through cultivating a powerful, direct, immediate, mindful awareness. Being receptive to what is, without the forethought of concepts, past experience, or ideas of how we think it is, should be, or could be. And to quote Krishnamurti, for some of you again, beginning as though you don't know anything about it and moving from innocence to innocence. With this great intimacy of mindfulness, opening the door to the truth, sometimes appearing so clear and so simple that we can hardly believe it. The mindfulness that the Buddha instructs us towards asks us to not remain resting in our old habits, to not remain resting in a kind of inertia, but to meet the experience of the moment with a fresh, connected intimacy, to come close and see how it is. Mindfulness doesn't float or skim along the surface of things. It connects with, goes right into the object. And yet it's not a fixed, sticky connection. 
mindful attention is clear. It's a fluid connection that lights on an object just long enough to know it as it is. It's this flavor that allows a penetrating investigation and clear comprehension of whatever it connects with. Mindfulness can be called the active aspect of awareness. It's a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. And at its best, a purely receptive relationship to whatever phenomena is presenting itself in the present moment. Mindfulness doesn't think, I'm doing this, or I'm doing that. The moment we think, I'm doing this, we become self-conscious, and we're creating or recreating a sense of self. Again, creating a separate, a separation, a disconnection from the reality of how it is separating ourselves, separating ourself out from the truth of the way of things. Again, creating the duality of it and me. And living in an idea, the idea of I, the idea of me. This factor of mindfulness is about living in the action living in the present moment's experience. In a sense, we forget our self. We lose our self, so to say, in what is. And so there's just what is, without anything added or needing to be added, without taking anything away or needing to take anything away. I sometimes think of mindfulness as magic. Not the magic created by magicians who create an illusion and then pull us into that illusion, that delusion. The sometimes seeming magic and the beauty of mindfulness is that it takes us out of the illusion, out of the delusion, directly into reality. Without it, we're bound. We're imprisoned in the assumed appearance of things and then caught again in our reactivity to these assumed, not seen clearly appearances. And we suffer unnecessarily in this believed unreality. If we don't know what mindfulness is, again, as Krishnamurti said, we're like a blind person in a world of bright color shadows, and moving light. There are four domains of mindfulness, four ways of setting up or establishing mindfulness in the here and now. And so we'll spend some time now exploring these. Our first domain is paying attention to the body in the body, just the body as such. Not one's feelings, ideas, concerns, or emotions about it. 
And of course, there are many and varied aspects of the body to notice and give a careful attention to. One of our primary orientations to the body through our practice is mindfulness of breathing, as we're all aware of. And I have to say, because I think sometimes there's some misunderstanding about this. Breath as an object of mindful attention is not just a beginner's instruction or a beginner's way of practicing. The understanding that's accessible via this mode of mindfulness is potentially profound. In making the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly, or the sensations of the in and out breath at the nostrils, a basic ground of mindful attention, I have at times over the years of practice been deeply grateful and awed at the depth and breadth of what there is to be known and understood with this simple and careful attention to the direct experience of breath happening. Let the attention drop into the breath. Mindfully absorb into the rising and falling without any self or with as little self as possible. Are you trying to control the breath? Noticing this without judgment, without self-recrimination. In a moment of seeing clearly, there's often relief. As a friend of mine says, seeing is relieving. We might at times notice each breath, each inhalation and exhalation directly as sensation movement, as vibration in the area of the body where we connect with the breath, noticing it right when it begins and staying with it all the way through to the end, maybe actually noticing the ending, the cessation of the breath, and the beginning of the next inhalation. Or we may simply notice the in and out breathing itself, basically just this, which tends to cultivate an increasing quiet, tranquil, and peaceful breathing, and all over body-mind quieting. The body in the body. Mindfulness of the four postures. Not our ordinary, everyday way of natural noticing and awareness of our bodily activity, but a close, intimate, and more constant and careful attention to the body in every position. Standing, sitting, lying down, walking, and in all the movements of the body, getting up, down, flexing and extending the arms and legs, carrying things, falling asleep, waking up. Who's moving? Who's lying down? Is there a someone, a me, an I, behind this walking, this standing, this sitting, this movement? Beginning to see the postures and the movement of the body just as it is in itself. Can standing simply be known 
just as standing. Sitting as just simply sitting. Walking as just simply walking. Without the layer of I am or the internal feeling of this is me, walking, sitting, etc. Once, many years ago, Sayadaw Upandita asked me, is there a woman or a man or a person when you're mindful of and noting walking, standing, sitting, or any bodily sensation? For just a, a brief moment, I was caught in the question, which in retrospect, I think, was kind of a, a test of my practice at, at the time. But very quickly, there was a spontaneous reflection response. No, there's no woman or man or anybody known when I'm directly connected and mindfully aware of walking or whatever phenomena is happening. A question you might ask yourself at some point. And maybe through the great intimacy of mindful attention of the body in the body, we also begin to notice the ongoing flow of conditions that every single moment of experience arises out of. For instance, the intention to, followed by the action. In the intimacy of mindfulness, we might begin to notice where the energy of intention volition begins, where it starts from in the body. I don't in some independent, mysteriously isolated way decide to stand or sit or stay sitting or take the next step. If we act from the place of separateness, isolation, we will eventually, or even very quickly, experience some degree of suffering. The posture and movement of the body are just as dependent or interdependent on conditions. They arise dependent on conditions just as, for instance, the arising of anger or the sensation of coolness on the skin, or the liking or disliking of some experience. Choices are made, but they're a product of the play of various conditions. The next aspect of mindfulness of the body as a body that the Buddha suggests, actually he doesn't suggest, uh, but directs us towards, is giving attention to the parts of the body, all 32 of them. Hair, skin, various organs, in our case here, most likely as they make themselves known, such as the stomach, the bladder, maybe the liver, the gallbladder, the heart, the lungs, etc. And I have no doubt that we do notice many parts of our body during retreat. But how often do we notice them in a mindful way? How identified, for instance, are we with the hair on our head 
or the lack of it? Or the hair on our body? How do we attend to the experience of our stomach or our colon or the digestive process therein? Or to a moment's or many moments experience of the heart? How do we experience moments in relation to the skin? This bag of skin that holds all the various contents of the body. How often do we experience our nails, teeth, saliva, sweat, or any part of our bodily body or bodily experience with what I like to call an extraordinary, the extraordinary qualities of a mindful attention? A non-judgmental, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting, non-self-identified kind of attention. Just the body in the body, without the layers of feelings, ideas, concerns, and emotions about it. Just the body as a body. And from the Buddha. Abiding, contemplating the body as a body, internally, externally, he or she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a yogi abides, contemplating the body as a body. Another aspect of mindfulness that can be established in the body is related to the fact that our bodies are essentially no different than any other matter or form. Our human form is the same, is of the same elements as any and every other form. Nothing more, nothing less. Again, potentially a kind of non-ordinary way to cut through the I am identification. We might touch into this directly, not conceptually, through seeing and knowing the experiences of a sense of denseness, or solidity, or hardness, or softness, or heaviness, or lightness, or through mindful attention to the cohesion and flow of the experiences in the body and in the movement of the body or via the experiences of heat and cold in a direct and intimate way, or maybe in connection to the experience of distension or rising or filling with the in-breath and falling or emptying with the out-breath. How intimately, how Mindfully connected are we to these kinds of experiences in our body. The elemental nature of the body, of form, of rupa. Earth, air, water, fire. As direct experience, not through thought, not as concept, but as sensation unfolding changing and ceasing. The last instruction from the Buddha in relation to this first establishment of mindfulness is 
the contemplation of the stages of decay in a corpse. Not something we have much of an opportunity to do in a retreat setting such as this. Though there are various kinds of corpses around to observe at times. Insects, maybe birds, and even the corpses of plants, trees, flowers. All forms of life are mortal. All forms of life are mortal. They have the nature to die and decompose. So it's possible to observe this directly in some ways. I've been in retreat at various times in various places and quite purposefully observed the process of roses and grasses die and go through all the changes that things do as and after they die. And once when I was on retreat with a few friends on Cape Cod where we rented a house for a couple of months to practice together, I had the great good fortune, good fortune only in some circles, uh, to come upon a dead seal on the beach. Every day for a month, I walked down to that body and sat with it for a little while, noticing the process of decomposition and decay, which in this particular instance was happening very quickly by being aided and abetted by the birds who found the seal's decaying flesh to be delicious food. It isn't about being morbid or strange in some way. Every living form is mortal. And we're so attached to forms, our own form and that of others. For many of us, our attachment is so strong that most of the time we live with an almost constant and almost uh, and often unrecognized desire for an attachment to the forms that please us or forms that are beautiful to us or forms that are amusing or interesting to us or forms that are familiar. And what is actually strange and kind of amazing, is that we go on thinking and acting as if we and they won't change, won't die. Which if we begin to see this habitual way of thinking and acting closely, we find that it produces an almost constant state of subtle or not so subtle tension and stress in us. The Buddha's instruction to attend to corpses of whatever form can be helpful. Helpful towards cutting through this state of tension and stress. Cutting through clinging. Cutting through this state of suffering. How do we know the body? This first foundation or establishment of mindfulness. As we pay a closer and more intimate 
mindful attention to the subtleties of the actions of the body and the subtleties of the experiences within the body and their interrelatedness, we may begin to see and understand the role of volition, where it comes from. And in a non-conceptual way, touch, come to know the deeper, subtler cause of suffering, which can open our heart into an unimaginable expanse in relationship to all beings. Through a clear, connected attention into this first domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body in the body, we may come to touch, if only for a moment, the end of suffering, which opens our heart and mind to an unimaginable experience of ease, peace, and well-being, which is just simply our natural possibility, our natural human potential. One of the things that I was most drawn to in my early years of Buddhist exploration was that the teachings and the practices are not a dry, intellectual kind of undertaking. For me, this was very important. The other piece that drew me early on was that the Buddha doesn't ask us to take up a system of belief and then follow it blindly. Quite the contrary. The topic of practice is our self our own body-mind process. Taking an interest in our body, in our mind, as a way to come to understand our true nature. This was of great appeal to me in my younger years. It was then, and still is for me, a very lively, potent engagement, rather than a disconnected, cerebral endeavor. In relation to the four establishments of mindfulness, a potentially particularly illuminating aspect of practice is when the feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral become more directly and immediately known in relation to the experiences that come in through each of the sense doors. When we really begin to connect, connect with and see the feelings that are produced through the contact of the sense doors with various phenomena. For most of us, in response to either physical or mental stimuli, there very quickly arise feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, or what can be described as the experience of things being neither pleasant or unpleasant, what's sometimes called neutral. And of course, when the feeling is pleasant in relation to physical or mental contact with some object, for most people, there's an emotional attachment ensuing quite quickly. Or when the pleasant feeling subsides, craving arises. We want the experience again. We want to get it back. And then what's our mental state? 
the mind, the heart, are in a state of dissatisfaction. Our seeming mental peace is disturbed. We've lost our sense of well-being. The nature of dissatisfaction is agitation, a kind of inner restlessness. When we experience unpleasant feelings in relationship to physical or mental contact with some object, again, for most people, there's an immediate, we could say automatic, emotional state of dislike. We want to get rid of or get away from the feeling or the object or both. So aversion arises, again, disturbing our mental peace. And for many of us, when the feeling is neither pleasant or unpleasant, the tendency is to ignore what's going on, not connecting with the present moment's experience. And maybe this accompanied with a state of not wanting, not wanting to see reality in that moment. I think that most of us are intense experience junkies. Neutral is sometimes hard to see. So unless we're intimately and carefully mindful, whatever feelings arise, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, they have the potential to disturb us emotionally, to cause us to suffer. We're buffeted around, caught in the up and down of pleasant and unpleasant and even neutral until mindfulness is clearly and strongly present. An amazing thing about these feelings is that we often forget that they change in the same or similar object that produced pleasant feelings in our mind. Within moments, it can produce unpleasant feelings. And so again, we experience attachment and clinging. Forgetting is the opposite of remembering remembering the connection that mindfulness offers to see things just as they are. Quite a number of years ago when I was sitting a three-month retreat over at the retreat center at IMS, along the shelves in the back of the little back dining room where people keep special things, I had some special things. On top of my little stash, one day on those shelves, one of those shelves, a note was left for me from a person whose stash was right next to mine. I didn't have any idea who this person was. I hadn't noticed. The note was offering me some green tea from his stash. A very pleasant feeling being noticed being offered a gift, me being offered a gift. I answered his note, gratefully. Then there was a second note 
offering me a hat. He'd noticed me going outside without, without one on, and it was uh, beginning to cool off outside. Not such a pleasant feeling in the mind. I felt impinged upon. I had a hat. If I needed one, I'd wear it. Not liking the attention, but answered the note politely. Then there was a third note on top of my stash, a question about practice, a most decidedly unpleasant feeling in the mind with that note, and a very quick reaction in the mind, an unmindful reaction, to write back a not-so-polite note. But fortunately, mindfulness and discernment kicked in. And I just simply relaxed, let go, and didn't respond at all. And the notes stopped at that point. At the end of the retreat, I spoke with the person uh, who'd written the notes, finally figured out who it was. And he had also gone through some inner turmoil himself and was grateful that I um, didn't answer him that last time was happy to not write any more notes. As I'm sure you would all agree with, when we feel pleasant or unpleasant as a result of contact with some sense object, the pleasant and unpleasant feeling isn't in the external object or within the internal object of attention such as a bodily sensation. The feeling is in the mind. So why do we feel this way? In my three-month story, the feeling and the subsequent action of answering the first two notes and the reaction in my mind to the third note were clearly coming from a place of self, of me, When we begin to see that all of the feelings we experience are within us, that we ourselves are mainly responsible for the feeling that we experience, we begin to know that we can't, in truth, blame others for the way that we feel. What, for many of us, are habituated storylines of he made me angry or she made me feel terrible, or he made me feel so happy, or this place, these people make me feel wonderful. As we begin to pay a careful attention to the feelings that arise, the habituated storylines begin to lose their strength. They begin to fall apart. In the light of seeing things clearly, putting the blame on others for our feelings isn't realistic. It's not the way things really work. The potentially illuminating aspect of practice in relationship to cultivating a careful attention to feeling is that it's at this point in our experience that we have the direct, immediate opportunity to drop 
are habituated reactions of attachment, clinging, and the various permutations of aversion. It's at this point in our experience of noticing the feelings of pleasant and unpleasant, or the feeling of neither pleasant nor unpleasant, that we can, in moments, just see the phenomena, know the attendant feelings, and that just be that. In that moment, there's no mental suffering. The heart and mind are not disturbed. It's a moment of ease, a moment of peace. So this second establishment of mindfulness, contemplation of the feelings simply in themselves, the feelings in the feelings. Mindfulness has the capacity to connect directly and simply with consciousness or knowing itself what we can call the bare awareness aspect of our experience. Sometimes we may experience just this. But at times, and maybe quite often, the knowing of the knowing or the simple knowing of phenomena may almost immediately be colored or modified by various mental factors or states of mind. This being the third domain or foundation of mindfulness. When we go to the marketplace, the marketplace of the lunch food display, the marketplace of where to do walking meditation this hour, or which shirt to put on today, In Taos, New New Mexico, where I live, many people come there especially, specifically, to come to the marketplace. Beauty abounds there. I've sometimes walked down the street at home looking into the shop windows and watched my mind and body seeing, just seeing, forms, colors, bare attention. And notice the coloration in the mind of wanting, leaning into, even sometimes the strong desire of seeming need. Greed coloring a moment's experience of seeing. A good practice in the midst of the marketplace. and the marketplace of our inner world of meditation, a moment of deep calm, a mindful moment of directly knowing this calm. No thought about it. Just it as it is. Just tranquility. Just calm. And then maybe quickly followed by grasping, wanting it to never leave directly knowing this experience, too. Mindfulness can know the mental factor or coloration in the mind of wanting. 
greed within the greed itself or the mental factor, the colorations of anger or hatred or fear or delusion. Any state of mind can be known within itself. How it acts, its changing flavors, its cessation. A moment of consciousness might be colored by faith or by delight or by sleepiness or distractedness. As I'm sure you've experienced at times, each of these mental factors, these colorations, may arise in relationship to the bare awareness of any given experience, such as a breath, a sensation, a sound, a taste a memory, a plan, an image in the mind. In the Abhidhamma, the very detailed and precise treatise on Buddhist psychology, there are quite a number of different types of consciousnesses listed and described. Lists of many detailed ways that bear awareness or present moment experience is colored. The perception, distinction, and naming of in such minute detail of each and all of these states of mind isn't necessary. It's really quite enough for us at any given moment of consciousness as they arise, quickly change, and cease. Mindfulness, knowing, our ordinary or usually experienced colorations in any given moment. Sleepiness, distractedness, fear, delight, faith, calm, anger, joy, hatred, dislike, liking, clinging, etc. The experience of knowing the knowing knowing that consciousness itself is manifest, and seeing the moment-to-moment arising and passing away of this itself is available to be directly and experienced and known with a careful, mindful attention. And again, the essential nature of mindfulness is that there's no attitude of judging or discriminating between right and wrong, between good and bad. It's just this, in this moment, whatever it is. With mindfulness itself, there's no grasping, no rejecting, no manipulation of experience. So the third establishment of mindfulness, mindfulness of the mind, or mental factors of the mind, the colorations of consciousness in themselves. The last aspect of mindfulness is called mindfulness or contemplation of dhammas, sometimes called contemplation of mind objects. This can be grounded in the six sense doors, 
hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, seeing, thinking. Or mindful awareness grounded in the five hindrances, sleepiness, restlessness or agitation, doubt, and the grasping or aversive mind. This fourth domain of mindfulness sees any of these experiences through the doors of Dhamma. Dhamma, in this case, can be translated as the truth, or the way of things, or the natural laws. Whether experiences in the physical or mental realm, this fourth domain of mindfulness knows experience through the doors of, for instance, the Four Noble Truths. Seeing the ultimately unsatisfactory nature of any given experience, seeing the truth of suffering, seeing, knowing the grasping onto the passing show, seeing, knowing the cause of suffering, and connecting with, seeing, and knowing the ending, the sensation, and the letting go, no grasping, no clinging of experience in any given moment. That being a moment when there's no confusion, no anguish, a moment of seeing the Dhamma, the truth of the end of suffering. And may be followed then by the experience of strong motivation and aspiration to continue on with a life dedicated to liberation. The truth, the Dhamma of following the Eightfold Path. From this perspective, we could say that every single experience, every single phenomena holds the Dhamma, holds the truth. The Dhamma, the way of things, is within everything, simply there to be seen, to be known, if we just take the time to look carefully. The truth is right here for us to see directly through every sense door, through every so-called hindrance, through every experience of body and mind, and within each and all phenomena that is happening everywhere around us. In some Buddhist schools, this is spoken of as within samsara, is nirvana. Within the whirlpool of our ordinary lives of samsara, if we stand still, cool, calm, focused, mindfully aware, in that moment we're no longer conditioned by ignorance, by ignoring, and being caught in the whirlpool of pleasant and unpleasant. I like it, I don't like it. No longer caught unaware in the whirl of one thing leading to another. No longer caught in continually, unwittingly moving around and around and around the wheel. In the midst of samsara, we can stop and pay an extraordinary kind of attention, a mindful attention, and wake up. And this is from the Buddha. Rooted in careful attention, 
careful attention is declared to be the chief. Accompanied by accomplished in careful attention, with a mind that has developed the enlightenment factor of mindfulness and discernment, one penetrates and sunders the mass of greed that she or he has never before penetrated and sundered, the mass of hatred, the mass of delusion that she or he has never penetrated and sundered. And closing the talk this evening from an instruction uh, that the Buddha gave to his monks from the Majjhimanakaya Sutta 131, I've uh, slightly altered it so that it's an instruction that we can offer to ourselves. Let me not revive the past or on the future build my hopes, for the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today, the effort must be made. Tomorrow, death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day, by night, it is in her or him, the peaceful sage has said, who has had, who has a single excellent night. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.